Our first scripture reading this morning comes from the New Testament Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 20 to 30. Matthew 11, 20 to 30, after which we'll turn back in the Bible and back through the centuries of history to Isaiah 46, which we'll read in its entirety. Matthew 11, 20 to 30, followed by Isaiah 46. This is the word of God. Then Jesus began to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I praise thee, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou didst hide these things from the wise and intelligent and didst reveal them to babes. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in thy sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my load is light. Now we turn back to the 46th chapter of the prophet Isaiah. Bill has bowed down. Nebo stoops over. Their images are consigned to the beasts and the cattle. The things that you carry are burdensome, a load for the weary beast. They stooped over, they've bowed down together. They could not rescue the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. You who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb, even to your old age, I shall be the same. And even to your graying years, I shall bear you. I have done it, and I shall carry you, and I shall bear you, and I shall deliver you. 
To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. They bow down, indeed they worship it. They lift it upon the shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It does not move from its place, though one may cry to it, it cannot answer, it cannot deliver him from his distress. Remember this, and be assured, recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn-minded who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. And I will grant salvation in Zion and my glory for Israel. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that on these glorious pages, we might see the face of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might see the true God, the living God, in contradistinction from all that the world falsely calls gods. Be exalted in our minds, be exalted in our mouths, be exalted in all that we say and do and think. We pray for your glory and our good in Jesus' name. Amen. When Jesus invites us to come unto him, weary and heavy laden, that we might in him find rest for our souls, he means something considerably different than some reading quickly through Matthew 11 think he means. He doesn't mean, come unto me and I'll give you more time to do the things you need to do. Often because of Christ, don't we find ourselves with less time than ever? He doesn't mean, come unto me and I'll give you more vacation days or more sleep at night. Often because of Christ, we find ourselves more sleepless than ever. He doesn't mean, come unto me and I'll help you with your shopping or mending or writing your report or whatever it is that keeps you busier than you'd rather be. Now, it's certain that he helps us with all these things, but that's not the point of the invitation. He invites us here, at the end of Matthew chapter 11, he invites us to something much more grand and glorious than any of those things. He is actually inviting us to know God. There is one way, there is one way only to know God. And it's not the way of spending your time and toil and treasure on things that don't profit. Knowing God is the secret of happiness. It's the secret of life. 
It's ultimately the secret of perfect rest. The wise and intelligent have their ways of trying to attain these things, but without the light of the gospel illuminating our minds, we, like the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, we grope in the darkness of our natural folly. We never get anywhere. Without that gospel light, we build for ourselves these impressive fortresses of philosophical and religious speculation, which are merely human opinions. Ultimately, they fail to tell the truth about God and ourselves. And because these constructions of ours fail to tell the truth, they fail to offer any sure and solid comfort when we really need comforting. Let me give you a few examples of this religiosity that the Lord Jesus saw going on around him every day of his life. And he commented on some of them. That's how we know about them. Lengthening the tassels on your prayer shawl, for instance. Lengthening the tassels on your prayer shawl. It's a bother to do and it won't help you to know God. Broadening the phylacteries on your forehead. It means an added expense and it won't bring you any closer to God. They may have a nice appearance if you like that sort of thing and might get you somewhere socially as they did for the Pharisees, but the living God sees right through them and he isn't impressed with the spiritual pride these things tend to represent. The golden calves Jeroboam set up in Dan and Bethel over 900 years earlier and the man-made religion they represented were an elaborate, expensive Abomination to God. And so much of the falderall of religion in later generations, right up to the present day, are practices cut of exactly the same cloth. Holy days of obligation, for instance, that God nowhere commands in His Word. But the Church counts them holy days of obligation. Dietary laws to tell us what we may and may not eat after Christ himself declared all things to be clean. Fundraising campaigns and pledge drives to dig congregations out of the massive debt they incur when they build shiny new gymnasiums to attract young people. Obligation and fear. Obligation and worry. Obligation and sweat. Obligation and working our way out of this mess we've made. It's servitude. That's the sinner's answer to the problem of his own debt of sin. But the Lord Jesus Christ came to pay in full the genuine obligations we do have to God. And he also came to set us free from all the imaginary ones. And if you, the captive, the debtor, the conscience enslaved by men, if once you've tasted of him, the Lord Jesus, you know how good he is. You know how good it is at last 
free of the iron yoke, to walk upright, to walk at liberty, to walk by the Spirit. Jesus' yoke is easy, and His burden, light. That's the lesson, but I have a bit of a history lesson today to drive that point home. Let me take you back a few years, a few centuries, to the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Kings of Judah, at a time not only remarkably dangerous and stressful for the Old Testament Church of God, but remarkably well documented also in the pages of Scripture. It's during their successive reigns that God raises up the prophet Isaiah, first to see his glory, and then by inspiration to speak his word to a very religious, very stubborn, very stiff-necked people weighed down with sin. The combined reigns of these four kings and Isaiah's concurrent ministry cover a period of almost 55 years, stretching from roughly 740 to 685 B.C., give or take. A 55-year span of time, 28 centuries ago. 28 centuries. A long time ago, right? Listen, friends, as far as the eternal God is concerned, the eternal God and the changeless nature of lost man, 28 centuries is the blink of an eye. It's yesterday. It's earlier this morning. I hope you'll never let the antiquity of the Bible put you off from paying close attention to it because neither the needle of God's wisdom and power nor that of man's need have moved over all the years. No matter how many thousands of miles or of years we travel down the road of history, the gauge of God always reads full and natural man's reads empty. We are sputtering on down the road of human history on fumes. Whether we like it or not, whether we admit it or not, we need him every hour. So, as Isaiah is writing, it's the early 7th century BC. The Assyrian superpower under Sennacherib is in the process of engulfing the ten northern tribes of Israel just as their reading of Deuteronomy should have taught them to expect for their apostasy, their national apostasy. God isn't suddenly springing this foreclosure on them when he brings the Assyrians. They walked into it with their eyes wide open because Israel was in possession of the covenant law and testimony. They should have known this was coming. In 722 B.C., these northern ten tribes go captive to Assyria, just as promised in the Word. They go off to Assyria, where they're essentially assimilated, and from which they as a nation never return again. Never. But when is military success 
like Assyria's over Israel, when has that ever slaked a nation's thirst for empire? Sennacherib wants more. Nor had Judah's record of covenant obedience to God been exactly lily-white over the years since Solomon's death and the division of his kingdom. So by 701 B.C., 20 years after Israel's dismantled and sent away, Sennacherib's army, the rod of God's anger, is now invading Judah. Assyria is at the gates of Jerusalem. Rabshakeh and his men are conducting psychological operations, psyops in Hebrew, against the men posted for duty on the wall. You'll find a richly detailed account of the headlines of those days in 2 Kings, chapters 15 through 20. And then again in Isaiah chapters 36 and 37. In those chapters, you'll read of Jerusalem pinned down by the Assyrians. You'll read of Hezekiah, humanly helpless. Hezekiah with nowhere to turn but to spread before the Lord in his holy temple, Rabshakeh's letter demanding of him total, immediate surrender. Powerless to do anything but to cry out to the Lord for deliverance. And the Lord does defend the city and deliver the city for his own sake, doesn't he? And for his servant David's sake. So that when the next day dawns over Jerusalem, Reveille goes unanswered in the surrounding camp of the Assyrians. No one rallies for the morning formation under the Assyrian flag. In point of fact, no one raised the Assyrian flag that morning because the corpses of 185,000 Assyrian troops found dead in their tents that morning had better things to do than to show up for work. By the silence of their lifeless tongues, they were raising the cry that salvation is of the Lord. And then Hezekiah's mortal illness about that same time and his miraculous recovery in answer to prayer described in Isaiah 38 shout out the very same, the very same lesson. Salvation is of the Lord. But then Isaiah's 39th chapter transitions us from the waning Assyrian threat to the next one beyond it, the next one rising over the horizon. This prophet Isaiah didn't live to see it, but we know that in 612 BC, Nabopolassar of Babylon was going to take the Assyrian capital of Nineveh. And in a few short years, his son, Nebuchadnezzar, was going to reign over the new world order. So Assyria is cut down, never to rise again. And then for a short span of time in the 7th and 6th centuries BC, Babylon takes charge of the world economy. Babylon takes charge of the world's popular culture. Babylon sets the standard for learning and architecture and agriculture. Babylon personifies the triumph, not only of Nebuchadnezzar over his vanquished neighbors roundabout, but the triumph of 
Bel Marduk over the gods of those surrounding nations. Bel, who was also called Marduk, Bel was the patron deity of Babylon. You find his name within the names of a number of Babylonian notables. Belshazzar, for instance, about whose feast you read in Daniel 5. Or Daniel's own Babylonian name, Belteshazzar. According to legend, Bel had a son, Nebo, whose name you'll also see wedged into the names of Nabopolassar, and his son Nebuchadnezzar, and a later king, Nabonidus. The Babylonians considered Nebo the patron god of literature and science, especially astronomy. And learning generally. In the pantheon of Babylon gods, you might think of Nebo as Bel's secretary of education. One god didn't do it all. There had to be a number of gods to cover all the bases. And Nebo was Bell's secretary of education. Just as generations of American school children grew up in their classrooms under the framed portraits of Washington and Lincoln to inspire us, I suppose, to greater human achievement, Babylonian children learned their alphabets, learned their civil religion, learned their world views under the gold-plated images of Nebo. So that's the background that helps us understand this 46th chapter and the whole book of Isaiah. Beginning at chapters 39 and 40, we are transported for the rest of the 66 chapters out of Isaiah's contemporary 7th century Assyrian setting. We're transported out of that into a deliverance and victory yet to come. A victory not over Assyria, but over Babylon. In fact, over every kingdom of the world that, like Babylon, takes its stand against the Lord and against his Christ. Written in the earliest years of the 7th century B.C., these last 27 chapters foretell the coming judgment on Judah, a judgment richly deserved according to the covenant terms of Deuteronomy 27 and 28. It's richly deserved, but it's a judgment mixed with all the generous mercy of heaven. And so the future, for all its Babylonian turbulence, for all the trouble it's going to bring, the future isn't something for the people of God to fear. There's light at the end of this long, dark tunnel, and the light is Jesus Christ. Lift up your eyes round about and see, because the Holy One of Israel spells out for us in these last 27 chapters the sure hope rooted in His own covenant promises. But as I said, the years would be turbulent. There is the wrath of God to deal with, to be sure. But in wrath he remembers mercy. A century is going to pass over the prophet Isaiah's dry ink, 
before Nebuchadnezzar takes even his first exiles to Babylon and trains them up under the golden images of Bel and Nebo. These exiles of the first deportation were going to include Daniel and his friends. Beyond that first deportation, another 70 years were decreed in that cauldron of idols, while the land of promise finally enjoyed its long-overdue, long-neglected Sabbaths, 70 years' worth of them. Generations would come and go between Isaiah's ministry and the eventual appearance of a pagan king to return them, chastened, to the land of their fathers. But at the appointed time, in God's good time, a remnant would return. God is faithful, God is true, and a remnant of them would return. Because God has a plan. He has a man. And that man, not yet born when these pages were first written, that man would be by name Cyrus. Now, let's step back from this for a moment, because I realize I'm moving you back and forth through a lot of history, and I'm going fast. And if you're not confused completely by all these strange names, you may be thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. Do you mean to tell me that Isaiah predicted Cyrus the Persian king by name, centuries before he appeared on the stage of world history? And yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Read the first verse of chapter 45. Cyrus, by name. The coming Babylon is going to fall just as surely as it would rise. And when it falls... It won't fall by chance. When it falls, it won't fall because its luck runs out, or its money runs out, or its housing market collapses. It won't fall for any other reason than because the Almighty God brings it down. Nations rise because He brings them up, They fall because he ends them. He brings them down. With open eyes and outstretched hand and the name of the victor upon his lips, God brings nations down. And if you're not yet willing to bow the knee of your intellect to the possibility, and what I mean is historical reality of predictive prophecy, if you're not willing to acknowledge the God of the Bible sitting enthroned outside time, outside history, outside his creation, seeing and declaring the end of things from the beginning. If you're not ready to accept that, then we've either got to change the historical record to suit you, or you've got to change your mind to welcome in the word of the living God written. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, says this righteous God and Savior. In chapter 45, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, for I am God and there is no other. There is no other. 
Well, if that's true, then who is this Bell? Who is Nebo? And what are all these silly gold-plated images of them you Babylonians parade around in your civic processions? Who are they? Well, the gods themselves are nothing. They're non-existent. You want to put your trust in Bell? You want your children educated in the worldview of Nebo? You want to entrust your nation's future to their safekeeping? They can't even keep their own images from being carted away. Writing from the other side of Babylon's fall, about the mid-5th century B.C., the Greek historian Herodotus fills us in on what actually happened to Bell's image. In Book 1 of the Histories, Herodotus describes Babylon's, uh, Babylon's Temple of Bell, and he writes this. It's a lengthy quote, but it's worth listening to. This is Herodotus. He says, In the Temple of Babylon, there is a second shrine lower down, in which is a great sitting figure of Bel, all of gold, on a golden throne, supported on a base of gold, with a golden table standing beside it. I was told by the Chaldeans, he says, that to make all this, more than 22 tons of gold were used. Outside the temple is a golden altar, And there is another one, not of gold, but of great size, on which full-grown sheep are sacrificed. The golden altar is reserved for the sacrifice of sucklings only. On the larger altar, the Chaldeans also offer something like 28.5 tons of frankincense every year at the festival of Bel. In the time of Cyrus, There was also in this sacred building a solid golden statue of a man some 15 feet high. I had this on the authority of the Chaldeans, though I never saw it myself. Darius, the son of Hystaspes, had designs upon it, but he never carried it off because his courage failed him. Xerxes, however, did take it and killed the priest who tried to prevent the sacrilege. All of this testimony comes from the Greek historian Herodotus, after the fact. You see, friends, false religion puts a fatal burden on those who support it. False religion offers no relief to those poor souls who labor under its burden. False religion is unnecessary. It's expensive of time, talent, treasure, It's counterproductive, it's foolish, and in the long run, it's suicide. For all the worship offered him, Bell can't keep his own 22 tons of gold and wherewithal from being packed up and carted away on animals to Persia. And Nebo has nothing worthwhile to teach the shackled minds of his school children about, on the, about the way to life and fruitfulness and joy in the glorious kingdom of the living God, the Holy One of Israel. Bel and Nebo are bankrupt. They're bankrupt. They enslave the soul, but have nothing to feed it, nothing to sustain it, Nothing to carry it through. 
You see these commercials these days urging you to buy gold, saying, this isn't gold stock, this is gold you can hold in your hand. The problem with gold you can hold in your hand is that someone else can come along and take it out of your hand and then you don't have it anymore. What good are the things you carry around once you've lost them? What good are the things that moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal? Beloved friends, will you carry your God around with you? Or be carried by him? Verse 3 and 4 of Isaiah 46. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, you who have been born by me from birth, and have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age I shall be the same, and even to your graying years I shall bear you. I have done it, and I shall carry you, and I shall bear you, and I shall deliver you. That's the word of God to his people. Oriental slaves used to carry their masters around on litters and sedan chairs. That was slavery. But it's not so among God's people. Among God's people, fathers carry their children. The Holy One of Israel carries his people. He did, he does, he will. And not only as the inspirational poem Footsteps in the Sand suggests, not just through the hard places of life, not only through the divorces and hospitalizations and miscarriages and bereavements and foreclosures and long stretches of unemployment. He carries you not only when you're at the end of your own resources, he also carries you at the weddings. He carries you at the birth of your children. He's there when the sun comes up. He's there when it goes down. He's there at the bedside. He never slumbers, never sleeps. You have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I shall be the same. And even to your gray hairs, I shall bear you. Friends, listen. To whom would you liken God? Would you liken him to an oriental statue? Probably not. Probably not, but the question doesn't go away. To whom would you liken God? A clockmaker who simply winds up his creation and leaves it to run on its own? Those are some pretty old ideas, to be sure. But this is the 21st century. To whom will you liken God? An impersonal cosmic explosion, maybe some mindless, purposeless, wandering evolutionary process lasting billions upon billions of years.
Every generation needs to face and answer the question. We come up with different answers, perhaps, but we need to face and answer the question, to whom would you liken God? The night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ observed the last Passover with his disciples. His last and the last, the very last. That evening, a 1400-year era of type and shadow was coming to an end. And on that occasion, he speaks to them now of his going to the Father. He speaks of preparing a place for them, so that where he is, they also may be. And like any good teacher, he leaves them asking as many questions as he answers. So around the table, one asks this, another asks that. One young man, Philip, knows he's in way over his head. And Philip says essentially, I I don't understand. I'm not up to this. I don't know the way to your father's house, Lord. I don't even know quite who it is you mean. Who is this father? Lord, show us the father. And it's enough for us. Through all the grief and confusion of that particular evening, all the misgivings and the misconceptions, through the thick darkness even of the curse that he himself was about to bear, Jesus cuts a direct answer. An answer to Philip's question, to Isaiah's question, to the tacit question of a world that's crushed under the weight of its own ridiculous philosophies and religions. To whom then would you liken God? Away with all the nonsense men contrive for themselves and have contrived for themselves since our fathers worshipped stock and stone. Away with all that. Away with a God who's far off. Away with a God impotent to save even himself. We were made for him who saves. Who carries. Who delivers. We were made to know him. To enjoy sweet fellowship with him. But with whom? Jesus says, He who has seen me has seen the Father. So may we bow knee, heart, and mind to Jesus, who shows us the Father. Let us love and confess Him. Let us serve Him as long as life lasts. Let us pray and work and witness for that day when the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He will reign forever and ever. Amen.